and so I'm going to be continuing in our sermon series this morning on the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. That's Acts 19, verses 21 to 41. And the title of my message is this, Built for Worship. Built for Worship. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up at this time to Acts 19, whether you just have a normal Bible or even if you have one on your electronic device, no shame in using that. If you would like a um, hard copy Bible, we have some in the back, this back table back here. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take it and keep it and make it your own. So feel, please feel free to grab that. Friends, let's, let's pay close attention to the reading of God's words this morning. I mean, we believe that these are God's words in the Bible. If you're here and, and that sounds strange to you, maybe you find it hard to believe, or you're a little bit skeptical of it, love to talk to you afterwards about it. But we believe that God has spoken. God has. And that it's found, His words are found in this Bible these books that are compiled in what we call the Bible. And so, that's why we gather. That's why we're here to hear from it. And so, let's read together Acts 19, verses 21 to 41. Here it is. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours... They all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, 
you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, Lord, I ask you this morning, in Jesus' name, would you open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to understand and receive your word this morning. We are easily distracted people when it comes both to our attention span and to our worship. So we ask you, by your Holy Spirit, help us to worship you this morning, to receive your word with all eagerness and to be transformed. Oh Lord, from idolaters to worshipers of the one true God. Amen. Well, my fellow Miamians, we love our beaches down here, don't we? Amen. <laughs> I mean, I live right down the street, just minutes away from a beautiful beach. We were just there yesterday, and it was wonderful weather in the morning. It was gorgeous. I mean, we love sunny, beautiful weather that we get so often down here. And it's so nice that people from all over the world will actually spend all kinds of money to spend their winters here or to buy a second or third or fourth home here. They love Miami. And because of our beach expertise, if you will, we should really be able to resonate uh, with a picture that C.S. Lewis Gave. He, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis was, he was a, um, a writer, among other things, in the last century. And he wrote the, the, the famous Narnia books that turned into a few movies. But he also wrote some nonfiction books, and one of them was called Weight of Glory. And he was speaking in this book about desire, this concept of desire, and how often Christians can paint desire as totally a bad thing. The idea that what, what we really need to do is just quell our desires and tone them down. And Lewis was challenging this, and he was saying, well, that actually, you know what? Our desires, they're not too strong. The problem is that they're too weak. He said this. I'm going to put the quote on the screen for you. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? We are far too easily pleased. Well, here's the point. We're all desiring beings. We're all worshipers. But just like the child preferred to play in the dirty mud in a back alley instead of having the amazing experience of going to a beautiful beach, by default, our worship is aimed in the wrong direction, at lesser things than what it was made for. 
And what's more, even when God changes us and shows us how much more glorious the beach is than the dirty back alley mud, so to speak, we still want to go back to that alley sometimes. We still want to keep some of that mud in our pockets and to pull it out to play with from time to time. Friends, this morning I want to talk to you about the mud and the beach. I want to talk to you about what that mud looks like particularly for each one of us and what the beach is that He's calling us to. In other words, I want to talk to you this morning about idolatry and true worship. And so the main point of my message, and what I believe that God is communicating to us through His text, is this. I put it on the screen for you. True worship leads to freely forsaking all your idols to follow Jesus. True worship leads to freely forsaking all your idols to follow Jesus. So, what do I mean by using these words worship and idols, this language? Well, if you're not familiar with it, let me, let me try to explain it to you. Worship, generally speaking, is this idea of loving something and giving yourself to something. Being defined by it. And having your life be governed by it. And true worship, what we would believe is true worship is worshiped aimed in the right direction. Having the proper thing as its object. Worship of God in Jesus Christ. Idolatry, on the other hand, is worship as well. But the reason why we call it idolatry is because it is worshipped aim in the wrong direction, i.e. at any and everything apart from God. And idols are the objects of our idolatry. I know it, I know it sounds pretty drastic if you're not familiar with this, but as we'll see from God's perspective, it really is. But you see, idolatry can creep up on us because it is often taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. So, there may be some of you in here who just, for whatever reason, don't really consider yourselves to be worshipers. Maybe it's not really a category that you think of yourself in. Maybe you're kind of disagreeing a little bit with what I've said. Well, hopefully through the text this morning, I can try to demonstrate for you that you, me, everyone else in Miami and South Florida and all over the world are worshipers. The question will be whether we are true worshipers or idolaters. And for some others of you, you may be all too aware of the fact that you are worshiper and that you often can worship the wrong thing. That your worship can often be aimed in the wrong direction, i.e. idolatry. I mean, God's shown you the beach of His glory and all that He has for you but you like that mud. You hate it, but you love it. You just can't fully leave it behind. Well, friend, my prayer is that God would help you, that He would help me this morning to identify that mud, that He would give us the power to leave it behind and to keep our worship aimed at Him. 
friends, God is calling us to be true worshipers of Jesus who freely forsake all our idols and follow Him. And so my first point is this in the message. Point one, idolatry. Point one, idolatry. So the way that we're going to get at this is by first looking at what true worship isn't, i.e. what idolatry is. Okay, so let's get into the story. In our text this morning, after the events that if you were here last week, we heard about in Al's message, which I'll refer to a little later, Paul is set. He's resolved in the spirit and ready to leave Ephesus after three years of being there. He sends his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, ahead of him as he takes care of a few final things. But during the time, during the gap where Paul is still there, but his helpers aren't, something happens. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So Luke tells us that there was no little disturbance concerning the way. So they were calling Christianity the way, i.e. the the way of the Lord. So Christianity in Ephesus was causing a major disturbance. But it wasn't in the way that you might think. No, Christians weren't causing problems. It was the change that was being brought about in them that was causing problems for others. And the primary person who took up this cause was a man named Demetrius. Now this Demetrius was perhaps the head of a guild of silversmiths or craftsmen. And one of their primary products was a little shrine, I don't know how large exactly, of the temple of Artemis, with Artemis sitting on her throne. And people would buy this and they would use it either to worship in their homes as a little altar or to bring to the goddess in the actual temple as an offering. Now, to tell you a little bit more about who Artemis was, if you're not familiar with that, as I wasn't, uh, it was, from what I can understand, a local goddess in Ephesus who over time, grew in fame and prestige, taking on more and more attributes as time went along, and eventually becoming identified with the Greek goddess, also named Artemis, who the Romans knew as Diana. Eventually, she was considered to be the mother goddess, a goddess of fertility and reproductive power, a goddess of childbirth. Animals and wildlife were under her domain. She was even regarded by her worshipers as supreme among all gods and goddesses. They honored her as, quote, first among thrones, quote, savior, quote, Lord, queen of the world, and the heavenly goddess. Do you see the progression there? What they ended up with was no small terms for their deity. And even more, the temple of Artemis itself was known as one of the great wonders, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. So this was no small religion. This was the Ephesian religion and a serious religion in their surrounding regions. And the temple of Artemis, to give you a picture of this, actually functioned as the banking and financial center of the province. And they also owned lots of property in the area. There were laws on the books forbidding blasphemy against Artemis. So as you can see, all their life was bound together in this religion. So the question is, How would Christianity fare coming into the very heart of this pagan world, this this magic town, 
this center of the religion of Artemis. Well, it's for that very reason that this uproar came. And we get the answer in the next verses. So look with me at verse 25 and following. It says, These, that's Demetrius gathering his craftsmen, he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So the gospel was spreading. People were believing. And you know what? They weren't going to the temple of Artemis anymore, which means they weren't buying the little uh, Artemis shrines any longer from Demetrius and company. And they were beginning to feel the sting because it was happening on such a large scale. Christianity was having an impact. Now, reading the way that Demetrius kind of lays it out to his workers sure seems a little interesting, doesn't it? I mean, where exactly do his priorities lie? I mean, it's obvious that his main concern isn't the worship of Artemis. It's the money. He stands to lose money and even be shamed if people see his business as illegitimate. But to bolster his case and stir controversy, well, he adds that, well, you know, uh, the Temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing and that even Artemis herself may be deposed. Well, notice this. It seems plain that Demetrius' real God, the one he is really worshiping, the one he is most concerned about and is frantically fighting to protect, is money, not Artemis. She's secondary. And then secondly, another thing to notice is that all of these dire problems are predicated upon the astonishing possibility that, can you believe it, God's made with hands aren't God's. (laughs) I mean, it seems a little bit ridiculous, doesn't it? Duh. Of course they're not, is what we think. So after Demetrius lays it out for his workers, the fireworks really start in verses 28 and 29. And we see there that in a fury of rage, this group actually begins yelling out, Great! Is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they rush out into the city and towards the theater. And they're just hollering out about this image of this God and about how great it is. So just imagine for a second the scene. The crowd, you know, runs down the main street of this town. They're yelling this out. And other folks in the area and on the street, you know, they see the crowd and instinctively they start running, asking, hey, uh, what's going on? Why, why are we running? What are we doing? And they hear the chanting and their blood starts pumping and they're on their way. They're not quite sure why, but something about Artemis and someone's against it. And part of this group, they find Paul's travel companions as they go. Maybe they were on the street as well or in a house. And they drag them along as part of the main culprits and part of their main problem. And then in verse 30 to 31, we find that, that things had gotten so out of hand that with, with this crowd that Paul wanted to actually go in. And no doubt probably use this as an opportunity to witness to the gospel. But his disciples, as well as some friends of his who were Asiarchs, that would be 
officials who handled provincial affairs, who I guess Paul had become friends with, they wouldn't let him go in and tell how bad it was. This, this theater would hold up to 24,000 people. This is a big deal. Then in verse 32, we read this. Now, some cried out one thing, and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I mean, this is an amazing line. And it's another thing to notice that, that all kinds of people have been caught up in this, who have no idea why they are there. I mean, folks are just shouting out different things. It's chaos. But then finally, in verse 33, it seems that the Jews wanted to step in and make sure that everyone knew that, well, they weren't a part of this Christianity thing and to help explain the situation so that they didn't get lumped in with them. But the crowd would have nothing of it. Look at verse 34. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, so they break out into a unified chant for over two hours. Again, it's hard for us to fathom how a large group of people could stand there yelling in defense of this man-made God for two hours. But they were, and they were serious. Well, after a couple of hours of it, the town clerk finally settles things down at the end of the passage in verses 35 to 41. Now, the town clerk would have been the town's highest-ranking official, kind of like their mayor, so he brought some authority with him. And his comments are interesting. He basically rebukes the Ephesians by saying, yeah, um, thanks for chanting that for two hours. Everyone knows that already. And then he finishes by reasoning with them that if they did have any real problems, they should follow the general procedure by going to the courts or even bringing it to the lawful assembly of the town. Because Rome was also looking over their shoulder. And Ephesus being a free town, they had a lot to lose if Rome came down hard on this riot. Rome did not like that. Well, finally, he dismisses them. Okay, so the question for us now at the end of that little story is, what can we learn about this from true worship versus idolatry? Well, first, remember, we saw how Demetrius' real God the true governing center of his life. It wasn't Artemis, but money. And when that was threatened, what did he do? He frantically fought for it. And so the question for us is, what are the things that make us go crazy if they're taken away from us or threatened? Oh, don't act like you don't have them. (laughs) If you don't think this whole idea of idols are real, just consider why is it that we can go crazy when certain things are taken away from us, even sometimes the smallest things. Identify that, and you've identified an idol, my friend. The second thing to see is how ridiculous it all was. I mean, we're inclined to kind of laugh at it. I mean, we can hardly imagine something like this in our culture today. Worshipping a man-made idol, yelling about how great it is, and on and on. We can be tempted to think that all this idolatry talk, well, it really doesn't apply to us here in the 21st century. I mean, things are different now, right? We're, we're more refined. We, we've 
arrived at a higher level of understanding. The question is, have we really? Have we really? Oh, to be sure, our idols are more refined now. But they're still there. While bowing down to metal gods is no longer in vogue, bowing down to the god of money remains strong. And we can find ourselves doing things that later we look back upon and we're just hitting ourselves in the head asking, why did I do that? You ever been in that situation? So let's break this down a little bit. Often you can recognize idolatry, I'll propose to you, around five major areas. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. And here they are. Sex, money, power, drugs, religion. Sex, money, power, drugs, religion. So the question for us is, where are our idols? Or what were our idols? As Christians, we believe that God has saved us from these things and delivered us from them. But we also know that God's work in us isn't fully finished yet. And so many of the idols that we used to give ourselves to continue to pop back up in our lives and tempt us to go back to them in different ways. I'll tell you, for me, in my college days as a freshman, my idols were many. Let me organize them for you under these these rubrics. Under sex, I was infatuated with women. Under money, my whole goal in choosing the major that I did was 100% because I wanted to make loads of money. I wasn't interested in serving people, making a difference, fulfilling a dream. I wanted money and lots of it. I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. And money was going to get me there. Under power... I was driven in my schoolwork by a burning desire to succeed and find value through the recognition that my grades brought me. Under drugs, I was addicted to alcohol and was a chronic binge drinker. And under religion, I was a worshiper of self. I was on the throne of my life, calling the shots and doing whatever it was that I wanted. You see, I bowed down to these things, metaphorically speaking, and was controlled and defined by them. Some of them were totally immoral things, but some of them were good things that, that I was making ultimate things. But they weren't giving me what I ultimately needed. They weren't satisfying my soul. I was left empty and without hope or meaning or direction. Listen, Before I was powerfully converted by God, I even went through a two-week stretch of depression, sadly to say, where I was drunk every single night. Friends, I didn't sit down a year before and plan to come to that place. But that's where my idolatry took me. Friends, our idols, they promise the world, but they deliver only destruction. There's a saying that's so helpful to remember here. I'll put it on the screen for you. It goes like this. Sin 
takes you farther than you want to go, costs you more than you want to pay, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. You see, we may laugh at the Ephesians worshiping a statue, but many of the things that we have done or one day may do are just as laughable. Just as absurd as worshiping a handmade statue and yelling about how great it is. We think we have things under control. We think things won't hurt us. And then, next thing you know, we've done things that we never thought we could do. Don't believe me? Just look around at our culture. Do you think... Men, or women for that matter, who sit for hours in strip clubs or watching pornography originally envision this is how their life would turn out when they looked at their first dirty magazine. Do you think marriages broken through adultery is what the couple envisioned on their wedding day or when they took their first glance at the person who would come between them? Do you think seemingly unbeatable addiction to drugs is where those folks initially wanted to go when they experienced their first high? Do you think people whose greed uh, that uh, made them rich but, but left them with no real family or friends to share it with, do you think this is what they were hoping and where they were hoping they would end up when they first, when they first got, their, uh, when they got their first good job? Friends, this is the sad crushing, horrible power of sin and idolatry in our lives. And I know that many of us are all too aware of it. But we must first own these truths in our own lives. But thanks be to God, He saves idolaters and sinners. That is who He saves. That's who we were. Because, friends, thankfully the story doesn't end there. My sermon isn't over here. You see that while it's important to see our idolatry for what it is, that's not where we stay. God doesn't want us to simply see where our worship has been aimed wrongly, but He also wants us to move it, to aim it back at Him. And so that's point two. True worship. True worship. Let's talk about that. I want to dip back into the end of Al's message from last week if you were here. I'm going to put the passage on the screen. It ended this way. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. If you remember that story. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging the practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So this passage here gives us a beautiful picture of where true worship leads. It involves a 
forsaking, and it also involves a following, okay? So the first step is freely forsaking our old ways. Now, for the Ephesians in this passage, as a result of what happened, many feared the name of Jesus. And many were moved by the Holy Spirit to true worship. They were moved to come confessing and divulging the practices. And what's more, many who practiced magic arts decided enough was enough. They came and actually burned their books publicly. Now, as Al mentioned, remember, we're not talking about today. We're talking about then. You couldn't just burn your books and then get back on Amazon a few weeks later when you kind of change your mind and get the book back. I mean, this was a powerful statement. This was a clean break, a dramatic act, a powerful public statement where they were declaring, I follow Jesus now. I will not be bound by this sin any longer. He is my God. He alone will I worship. I'm done with this idolatry. And notice, these people who came were believers. They were believers already. For whatever reason, they had been holding on to some of their secrets and some of their magic books. They were probably holding on to them as kind of like, you know, like a, an insurance policy. You know, just in case that this whole Jesus thing didn't quite work out, they could go back to it. But now, as the Holy Spirit convicted them, they came forward to confess their sin, forsake it, and to follow Jesus. Oh, this powerfully applies to us. None of us here are perfect. We all have sin in our lives, even now. And we have histories of idolatry that we would rather forget and be done with. And temptations to them that still nag us. And so the question is, what magic books, so to speak, are we still carrying around and keeping secret? I mean, what sin are you still holding on to and indulging? What idols have you not fully let go of? You see, what often happens is that the major idols that we turn from when we became believers pop back up in our lives now in different ways. Whereas maybe at one time we were sexually immoral, now maybe we're tempted to lust. Where at once maybe we were greedy, now we're tempted to worry and selfishness with our money. Where once we were power grabbers, now we're tempted to anger when things don't go our way. Or maybe it comes to us through gossip, seeking to belittle others. And make ourselves look good. Whatever our particular idols, friends, Jesus is calling us right now to make a full break with them. Today, I'm calling you, today is the day to resolve by the Holy Spirit that we will be done with our old idolatry. And remember, Jesus isn't just calling you to forsake your idols, but also to follow Him. Because we have Jesus, we can freely forsake our idols. Why? Because we know that they have no power. We know that in the end they cannot satisfy us. We know that they will destroy us if we don't. 
We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. It's not a hard decision. But at the same time, it is hard, isn't it? I mean, that's why we hold on to our idols like we do. While our hearts have been made new, there's still a lot of old stuff in there, isn't there? Well, friends, listen to me. God, the Holy Spirit, is in you right now, if you are a believer, and powerful to satisfy your soul in Jesus in ways that no idol can. He's in you right now to establish, to establish every resolve you have for good that you make to forsake your idols. What Jesus offers is better than the highest pleasures of sex, richer than the greatest hordes of cash, more powerful uh, than, than all types of worldly power, more satisfying than any drug can offer, and more hopeful than any religion can give. The only way that we're going to be able to forsake our idols is by turning and following Jesus. If we simply focus, if we're, if we're dead set and we're consumed with just the forsaking, just the stopping of whatever it is that we were doing, we won't last long. Listen, since we worshipped our way into idolatry, since we worshipped our way into idolatry, the only way we are going to get out is by worshipping our way out. By worshiping a superior God. And the only one, the only one, the only one, I'm here to tell you, that can break your bonds and satisfy us like no other is the one true God of the Bible. In Jesus Christ. And so I want to end on this note, friends, on this good news. Because the reality of our idolatry and the idols of our culture can be nearly crushing to us. Friends, our fight, with, our fight with idolatry isn't what saves us. God comes into our lives and unilaterally has transferred us from idolaters to worshipers. And now He's calling you, He's calling me, He's calling us to live in light of that. Oh, let me tell you, friends, let me tell you what our God has done. You see, if you're sitting here, maybe you're ashamed of your idolatry. You're all too aware of this. Maybe you've been found carrying a little bit of that back alley mud in your pocket and dabbling in it from time to time. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're here looking for authentic hope, feeling hopeless and wanting to find a God who can truly satisfy. Listen to what Colossians 2 13 to 15 says to us. I have it on the screen for you. It says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So friends, look at me. If you believe in Jesus, if He is your Savior, all of your idolatrous ways, no matter how bad, 
which are breakings of God's laws, have been fully, 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 and freely forgiven. God gave His Son to die for your sin. It's all been canceled. (laughs) He gave His Son so that you can now freely forsake that sin that has no more power over you. Oh friends, follow Jesus. He's worthy. He's worth it. And He loves you. He loves you. Friends, we were all idolaters. We were all idolaters. But we've been washed. We've been set free. Look at on the screen with me, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. to Listen to this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. (laughs) Isn't that good news? And this is true for every one of you who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you consider Him to be God? Do you consider His death to be what causes your reconciliation to Him and that He rose again. Friend, that is belief in Jesus Christ. You're a believer and God has washed your sins away. And if you haven't believed, God offers this to you right now. Do you feel trapped in your current circumstances? Do you feel unable to break free maybe from certain habits that you have? Have you made a mess of your life? Are you looking for true hope? Oh friend, there is only one God who offers the freedom and the hope and the salvation that you desperately need. We believe that it's found in Jesus Christ. It's the only way that you can become a true worshiper. Listen, He is offering you infinite Joy, in contrast to your fooling about with empty things. Oh, think about this, my friend. Well, to conclude, as I said earlier, God wants us, He's empowering us to play at the beach, at the beach of His glory. Let's leave the mud behind, friends. Empty it all out of our pockets. Be done with it and walk in the glorious light of His Son. Oh, it's not going to be easy. I know it's not. But we are loved, friends. We've been forgiven. We have the power. We're children of God now. We've seen the beach. We know that the mud is just mud. And it stinks. Oh, friends, let's keep fighting. Let's confess 
and divulge areas where we're still hanging on to our old sinful ways. Let's forsake them. They can only serve to cause us hurt in the end. Let's let this verse that I'm going to put up for you from 1 Peter be our anthem. Okay? 1 Peter 4, 1-3. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Listen to this. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. For doing what everyone else in Miami wants to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Oh, the time has passed, friends. All the time that we've spent in our sins so far, it's enough. It suffices. Let us be a people who live the rest of our time on this earth for the will of God. We're alive now, friends. We don't, we don't have to do any of these old things that we were captive to in the past. We do not have to do them. We have the power to stop by the Holy Spirit. The night is gone. The day has come. Let's walk in the light, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up. Oh, Father. Lord, my heart is full right now. I am so aware that what is true of me is probably true of so many of us here, Lord. That we're stirred to want to forsake all our sin and get rid of that mud, God. But we have in the back of our minds, we know that later on this week, the temptation will come. The urge will come in a week, in a month, in a year. And we feel weak and powerless and and fragile, Lord. I pray that You would empower us by Your Spirit to forsake our sinful ways, God. Just as the Ephesian Christians had an impact on their city through their changed lives, would we have an impact on our city through our changed lives? And Lord, I pray that we would end on this note, that You stand here with Your arms open wide, Lord Jesus, saying, come to Me. Come to Me, all you sinners, all you idolaters, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give rest to your souls. Lord, I pray that you would plant that image in our minds, that no sin we commit turns you away from us. If we're in you, your disposition towards us at all times is one of love, of yearning, of pity, but never anger, never disappointment. Never frustration because you came to save us from these things. Oh, Lord, and so you're standing here calling us to come, calling us to throw it all down, calling us to lay it at your feet and promising us superior pleasure, superior joy, superior peace, superior hope, 
superior destination. Oh God. All we have is Christ, Lord. Would that be our theme? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.